Isaiah chapter 8. I'll read a bit from chapter 8 and a bit from chapter 9. Put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law, Israel cries out to me, O our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a craftsman has made it. It's not God. It will be broken to piece, in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And let's slip over to chapter 9. I'll read from verse uh, 7. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They've sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Let's pray. As always, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in understanding your ancient word. Especially, Lord, we are conscious that uh, the words, as they were spoken, were spoken into a situation and a culture so different from our own. And yet, Lord, we know that human nature does not change and your heart does not change. So, Lord, we pray with confidence that as you help us to understand what Hosea said to his people, we will hear you speaking to us, your people. We ask that you will do this for your greater glory in Christ's name. Amen. Actually amazing what a large proportion of marital relationship problems are caused by poor communication. You talk to a couple whose relationship is in trouble, and I have to say I've done it more than I would like to, you find that in 99% of cases they will tell you that part of their problem at least is that they, they, they no longer talk, they can't communicate with each other anymore. And uh, in such circumstances, it's never very long before one or both of the partners begins to think of the divorce court. It's actually just the same in our relationship with God. The Bible's quite clear that our relationship with God is not, uh, in many ways, in a totally different compartment and category from the relationships that we have with other people. Of course, there are unique aspects of the way that we relate to God, but actually one of the amazing things about the, the true God is that we relate to him as a person. In fact, as a person who, through Jesus, has even become familiar with human life. 
He's not some mysterious, ineffable, unknowable spirit. He's not a distant first cause. On Father's Day, it's perhaps appropriate we remember he's a father. He describes himself as that. Another person who longs to have a relationship with him as his sons. But actually, Hosea uses another image primarily. Hosea uses the image of God as a lover, as a husband. God is a personal God, wanting the most intimate of relationships with us. And as such, there must be communication. Hosea has actually been using the image of God as a a lover and a husband again and again throughout this prophecy. He wants us to, 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 to understand that that image is a very, very important one for us to know how to relate to God and, yes, to know what God's love for us is all about. In Hosea's day, though, he lived in a time when the people of Israel's love affair with God, their marriage with God, if you want to put it like that, had gone tragically wrong. And in the first three chapters of, the, of Hosea's prophecy, Hosea himself is to, is to live out that tragedy in his own life. He marries an unfaithful wife because Israel had been unfaithful to God. Hosea's uh, wife left him for other lovers, just as Israel had abandoned her relationship with uh, the Lord for more attractive but ultimately worthless other gods. And so at the end of um, chapter 2, when that estrangement has been uh, thoroughly described, we expect the divorce court to be looming into sight. All that's required now is for uh, Hosea to go and divorce his wife and for God to go and divorce his relationship from his nation Israel. And that will be all cleared up. But that is not what Hosea is told to do. Hosea is told quite extraordinarily to go to his wife, actually when she's been totally ruined by her lovers, to buy her back from a man who now owns her as either a a slave or a concubine or perhaps even a prostitute. Hosea is called to woo her again, to love her again, to turn her heart gently back to him, to restart the relationship Because Hosea has to learn and to teach the people of of God, that's what God's love is all about. It's a love that won't let go. It's a love that persists. It seems, though, that Israel's problem was that they had no idea how dire their situation was. They had no idea what, what, what uh, desperate straits they were in, how difficult it was to come back to God. In chapters 4 and 5, Hosea starts to, uh, to, to, to spin out quite how dreadful is their lock, loss of a relationship with God and their loss of any idea of what love is all about. He says there is only lying and adultery and violence in his society. The beginning of chapter 6, 
Um, uh, four weeks ago, I think we were looking at that, Hosea records what at first seems to be something really positive on the part of Israel. They say, come, let us return to the Lord. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. But then Hosea says that's not real repentance. That is... Uh, uh, a mere sentiment of the moment, as, as, as passing as the morning mist over the meadows by the river. Perhaps he actually personally had painful memories of his wife's temporary returns to him after her dalliance with various lovers before she finally left him. He knows that true repentance is really, really hard. A truly restored relationship with God requires more than the odd pious speech. But then by the beginning of chapter 8, we find again that Israel still hasn't got it yet. They still don't realize what dire straits they are in. In fact, uh, we find them at the beginning of chapter 8 protesting all, that all is well, that they do know God, despite the fact that all is far from well. Chapter 8, verse 2, Israel cries out to me, O oh, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good an enemy will pursue him. See, in the message of Hosea so far, we've got to the point where Israel is going to speak again to people who think that they know God, who think that they acknowledge God, and yet are heading for destruction. They are like the couple, in fact, who think, or at least one partner thinks, that they are happily married. He thinks it's all okay. He doesn't realize he's never really talked to his wife for years. He doesn't realize she's already consulting the lawyer about divorce because he's lost touch with her. God says, you don't know me, Israel, because you're not listening to me. We're going to see five ways, and uh, we could have chosen more actually from this passage, but five ways in which the people of God so often fail to listen to him. First of all, says Hosea, people of God can fail to listen to God in choosing, by choosing the wrong leaders. Chapter 8, verse 4. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. See, Hosea lived in uh, uh, politically turbulent days. The superpower of Syria was, uh, was threatening them, and the internal politics of uh, the northern half of Israel, which is the main focus of his interest, was, was distinctly unstable. Leaders uh, uh, came and went very rapidly at times, by and large as a result of political intrigue and assassinations. 
whoever was most ruthless and most dynamic ruled the people at that point. And the people loved it because they were facing a great superpower on their borders that was both dynamic and ruthless. And they thought they needed just such a ruler to look after them. Although, thankfully, murder is not commonly practiced in uh, people coming to leadership in modern churches, I don't don't think we are immune today from appointing the wrong sort of leaders. Leaders who are appointed without God's consent or God's approval. What do we look for today as God's people when we appoint a new elder or a a deacon or a house group leader? Very often being a nice person figures quite highly, doesn't it? Someone whom we like. Then powerful personalities always gain our attention. Then after that we look for particular uh, gifts and skills Sometimes in churches there's actually just an unwritten rule that when you get to a certain age and you've been around for a certain amount of time, you're appointed as a leader. You see, whenever the Bible advises on appointing leaders, it looks for godly character. Describes someone who is humbly living under God's authority. Because the key thing that any leader does is not call people to follow him like the, the, the powerful, charismatic leaders will tend to do. But they call people to follow God as their leader. And it's very often not the person that you immediately look at and see who is the person whom God has qualified to do that. You know, apart from general godliness of character, there is only uh, one gift, one particular skill that the New Testament requires of elders. And that is the ability to teach. Very important that we realize why that is. Because, you see, the teacher supremely does not lead by force of their own personality. The teacher leads by bringing people face to face with God's message to us. New Testament says that church leaders are teachers who practice what they teach because as people are leading through teaching God's word and the people of God are led by God himself and not by the wrong sort of leader. Now, we're an extremely mixed church here, and it's actually very easy for us to uh, appoint leaders from amongst uh, uh, perhaps the the segment of the church that looks good by the world's standards and overlook um, people who are perhaps naturally less prominent in the church. Very unwise. Actually, if you see, look closely at what's going on in the church right now, you'll see, actually, the people whom God is using the most are the people who are humbly committed to understanding God's word, the people who are living under God's authority, and the people who are learning to communicate God's word to other people. They are the people whom God is using right now 
in the heart of our church. And I can tell you they do not comprise the people with the best academic qualifications or the most significant jobs in the world. Remember, it's very, very easy to ignore God, not to listen to God, and appoint the wrong leaders. Second way in which God's people fail to listen to him so often is that they focus on techniques of worship rather than actually on worshipping God himself. Israel in Hosea's day was, was deeply idolatrous. Verse uh, 4, the second half, makes that plain. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. But it's important for us to realize what those idols were, by and large. They thought they were worshipping the God of Israel. The next verse uh, uh, speaks of this calf idol of Samaria. There was overt idolatry in uh, Hosea's day, but Hosea is actually pointing his, uh, 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 his guns in a different direction. He's speaking of people who said that they were worshipping the true God, and yet who felt they needed um, a little, or perhaps even a big, we're not quite sure, uh, model of a calf to aid their worship. Remember, he's talking about these people who in verse 2 have said, Oh, our God, we acknowledge you. It's just that we find it very, very useful to have this calf around to focus our worship of you, God. And Hosea says that is every bit as idolatrous as worshipping another God by name. Now, it's very important that we understand why that is. The reason that God forbade Israel to set up any image for worship was partly because he'd actually redefined what real worship is. To worship God, according to the Bible, is primarily to obey him with our whole lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses was quite clear why they shouldn't have idols. He said in uh, verses 15 and 16 there, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Deuteronomy 4. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make yourselves an idol. In other words, Moses is saying, this is the God who speaks, who reveals himself by speaking, who is to be worshipped by obedience to his word. The moment that you introduce a, an image then you've adopted a pagan understanding of worship, which actually focus around... Everything's trying to stop us, isn't it? The moment you've introduced an image, then, 
in your worship, even if you say that you're still worshipping the God of Israel, you've redefined worship as being something that you do in, in a moment of adoration or ecstasy or actually what we call worship today. Biblically, worship is not that. Biblically, worship is submitting our whole lives to God. There may be particular moments and times when we gather in order to encourage and focus and reinforce that attitude of worship for God in our whole lives. But if actually the, 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 uh, that gathering becomes, in fact, the focus of our worship, the sole focus of our worship, as it is when you put down a, a calf idol and say, worship this, it will help you in your adoration of God. And you've moved away from the God who reveals himself by speaking, whom we worship by listening. If you think about that uh, I think it actually should uh, rightly alert us to some real dangers of the church in today's world. The language we use, we all do it, I'm guilty of it sometimes, we speak of having a time of worship, by which we mean gathering to sing songs, to pray in a certain way, to, to have a certain type of, our, of experience. Now, if our hearts generally are right with God, of course that moment is worshipped in the sense that it is a particular expression of a life more broadly spent in obedience to God. But too often in the church today, we say that that is worship, and everything else that we do is not. You know, wrestling with the text of Scripture in order to understand what God says to us is not worship in our modern vocabulary. Accepting the cost of obeying what God says is not worship. Walking out of church at the end of our time together to serve God for the rest of our week is not worship in our modern vocabulary. But actually it is that life of listening to God which is at the heart of what the Bible means by worship. See how easily, like these Israelites who set up this little calf idol, they said to aid their worship. See how easily we can become idolatrous frankly. Our worship focuses around a particular style of music, a particular type of gathering, the, the right sort of building. And it moves us away from what real worship is according to the Bible and can become every bit as idolatrous as the ancient Israelite who says, I need a golden calf to aid my worship. The heart of worship is listening and obeying God. 
We can sing about it, we can pray about it, we can get excited about it, we can get ecstatic about it. I hope we do. But if the ecstasy and the singing become central, the Bible says we are idolaters because we are worshipping something other than the real God who speaks. See, that's why, actually, the Bible takes so little interest in the things that are, that are so often centre stage in a, in a church's life. I, I don't know whether you've ever noticed, the Bible's incredibly relaxed about all aspects of what Christians do when they're gathered together. You know, the meeting together is a, is a great thing, and the Bible's very positive about it, because it's essential in encouraging us in our obedience to God. But there's actually nothing in the, in the New Testament which tells us even how often we should meet. Could be fortnightly. Could be monthly. It was daily in the early church. There's nothing actually which says which day of the week we should meet. Do you know that? There's some evidence that the early church often used to work uh, to meet on Sunday which, of course, was a, a working day. But uh, nowhere does the New Testament say that Sunday is the required day. Why not Saturday? Why not Monday? Singing's a really nice idea when you gather together. Colossians 3.16 says it's, it's helpful if you like that sort of thing, right? which I do personally. But it's not described as worship itself. You know, even a sermon can become an idol. All the New Testament tells us is that we must be teaching and learning and encouraging one another to obey the Scriptures. And there are all sorts of ways that we can do that. See how if we set up any other, any technique other than listening to God and obeying His Word, then we move away from what the Bible says about worship. This gathering here is only as good or as bad as it encourages the people to listen to God and obey him. Because that's what our worship is all about. If we uh, do anything else and have anything central, uh, anything else that is central, then we might as well go next door and sit in front of the Buddha and venerate him. It's just as idolatrous. A third way, then, in which Israel had stopped listening to God, she had stopped listening to God, listening to God in her appointment of leaders, she had stopped listening to God in, uh, in moving away from true worship to idolatry. She'd stopped listening to God as well in that she was recklessly tolerant. We haven't got time to uh, unpack it in a lot of detail, but uh, there is this very pregnant uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. She... Uh, um, had become accustomed, the nation at that point, to little uh, uh, compromises with the world around. 
So Assyria would go away for a while if they paid an amount of money to make her go away. Let's pay them some of the money. So uh, they would feel a little bit more secure if they uh, had uh, an alliance with Egypt the other way, who were very powerful and may just prop them up a little bit. Let's sign that alliance. Never mind the fact that God said absolutely clearly, you must make no alliances with other nations, with pagan nations. Never mind the fact that God said absolutely clearly that their security must rest in God as a whole. Now they were allowed to, they allowed these, these little breezes of uh, compromise to float around in the nation. Because after all, they were still worshipping God, weren't they? Why did it matter that every now and again they compromised? We live in the days when um, chaos theory has become uh, quite uh, popularly known, haven't we? Especially after Jurassic Park. We know that uh, the gentle waft of air caused by a butterfly flapping its wings in Africa somehow, the scientists tell us, can, uh, in the unstable system, which is the weather, become a mighty gale in Europe. Well, that sort of uh, thing can happen as well in our relationship with God. We sow a little breeze of compromise and find a massive whirlwind or storm coming back to us. In Israel's day, it was to be the mighty nation Assyria. They thought that they were keeping uh, uh, Assyria at bay, but actually they were just storing up a greater destruction for themselves. What do you think it might be for us? Now, whenever churches die or break up in acrimony, it is always, when you examine it, because apparently minor compromises that perhaps sometimes went back years. Perhaps uh, the church tolerated an idolatrous attitude towards its church building or its style of public meetings. Perhaps uh, unrepentant sin was tolerated amongst the members. Perhaps some compromise with the, the world around the church was tolerated. And in the short term for that church, it seemed to work. The church was a happier place. It had happier relationships. It's never very nasty, nice to, uh, to challenge people's presuppositions, to discipline sin amongst the people of God, to stand out against the world around. It's much easier to compromise. But in the background for such churches, there is always a storm that is brewing because there is a wind that is being sown. God is not being listened to. And sooner or later, the whirlwind will come back on that church. And I've seen it happen again and again, sometimes completely by surprise. But there were bad relationships tolerated in the church for years and never sorted out suddenly they crystallize around one issue and the church is no more. They didn't listen to God 
because they were reckless in their toleration of things that God hates. A fourth way that uh, the people of God so often fail to listen to God is found in chapter 8, verse 14. They build for comfort and security. Israel has begotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire upon their cities that will consume their fortresses. The whole divided nation who are both mentioned here, Israel up in the north and uh, Judah down in the south, who were governed separately at this point, the whole nation, though, had lost their way. The northern kingdom was obsessed with wealth and built great palaces. The southern kingdom was obsessed, obsessed with its own national security and built fortified cities. And both of them, says Hosea, have forgotten God. few of us uh, this week heard Phil Jensen speaking about uh, growing churches in a meeting in St. Ebb's Church. He said there's a very simple difference between churches which are declining and churches which are growing. Growing churches embrace pain for the sake of the gospel. Declining churches seek comfort. Growing churches take risks for the sake of the gospel and are prepared to feel insecure, not least financially. Declining churches seek to consolidate in order to feel secure. Churches that feel, that feel comfortable and secure, you know, are almost by definition not listening to God. Didn't Jesus say to those who would follow him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Why, why then do modern believers get so obsessed with building their own little personal palaces? Why are we so obsessed with making sure that we have a comfortable place to worship? Why are we so obsessed by seeking our own immediate security and forgetting the incredible security that there is in going out on a limb for God. Remember what Jesus said? Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't that security enough? that if we are going, if we are teaching people to be disciples, then Jesus Christ is with us. If we are not going and withdrawing into comfort, if we are not going and building our fortified cities for our own personal security so that we can feel comfortable, Jesus is not with us. In fact, says Hosea quite, quite uh, seriously, God says, I will send fire upon their cities. I will consume their fortresses. Israel was invaded and Israel was destroyed because it sought comfort and security. 
if it had sought the painful insecurity of trusting God and serving him, it would have been saved. The fifth way in which we uh, so easily fail to listen to God, and this time the, the final way, is in one sense actually a summation of all, of all that has been said, and even possibly God's judgment on the people as a result of all that's been said. Do you see chapter 9, verse 7? Chapter 9, verse 7, Hosea speaks about uh, their, the fact that they despise those who bring God's word to them. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this, because your sins are so many, your hostility is so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. See, if that uh, translation is right, it may be that it's because of all these earlier sins of not listening to God that finally he allows them the freedom, the terrible freedom, to overtly and ostentatiously reject the prophets who bring God's word. To consider them fools and maniacs. Now we don't have prophets like um, Hosea, but we have Hosea's writings. We have the rest of the Bible. God gives to uh, his New Testament church primarily teachers to explain those writings People who have stopped listening to God show it by their lack of appetite for reading God's word and listening to it being explained. Seems such a foolish activity, doesn't it? People who believe the Bible and proclaim its truths actually are always called maniacs. They always have snares set for them. They often even... Uh, from within the church, find that there's real hostility to what they're doing. Look at verse 8. A prophet along with my God is the watchman over Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel. Yet snares await him on all his paths, and hostility in the house of his God. I've spoken to a large number of pastors who pastored churches which uh, grew under God over the years and they all tell exactly the same story that the strongest opposition always comes from religious people I was talking to someone this week who's, um, uh, who's been a pastor for a long long time an Anglican um, minister and his son has grown up and uh, is, is training for the pastorate. When his son got to 21 and was starting to talk to his parents about uh, his desire to serve God in the pastorate, he said, but I am never, never, never going to be an Anglican minister because I've seen what the hierarchies have done to you, Dad. And that happens in all sorts of churches. There is real pain, real opposition very often that all of God's leaders feel. 
very, very tough. And not just pastors, house group leaders very often, who have comments uh, passed on them for the way that they lead people in the house group. At all sorts of levels, those who are really seeking to speak God's word somehow seem to attract hostility. God says that is a sign of people who are not really listening to me. So are you listening to God? So you, you may know personally in your own life that you've not even started listening to God yet. Well, let me say to you, you're in a very privileged position. I sound funny me saying that, but the privilege you have of, is of knowing clearly what you need to do. I know it's not easy. There may well be a very, very difficult way forward, but if you know you haven't even started listening to God yet, then you know where to go. Start listening to him. See, some of us here may actually be deluded like those Israelites. We protest vehemently, I do acknowledge God, but deep in our hearts, we know we're not really prepared to listen to him. It shows in the leaders that we like. It shows in our attitudes to so-called worship. It, it shows in the casualness of our walk with God. It shows in our love of comfort more than the gospel. And it shows in our reluctance to really read God's word and understand it and put it into practice in our lives. Now, there is uh, many a thoughtless husband who is taken completely by surprise that his wife is asking for divorce because he never actually really realized that he wasn't listening to her. I wonder how many thoughtless churchgoers there will be who are taken completely by surprise when God finally says to them, you never really listened to me. I never really knew you. Depart from me. There is no getting around it. It is a very, very important topic. We must be those who listen to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, open our ears, we pray. If it's for the first time, Lord, do it now. If we sense we've closed our ears, Lord, reopen them, we pray. Help us to focus on loving your word and loving Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.